This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. morning. It's Friday, February the 23rd, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today... It's the weekly news panel. Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta will stop by. They react to the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. He died in an Arctic prison last week. What are the bigger implications? And according to Stats Canada, renters are more likely to experience financial distress surprise, surprise, and loneliness, according to a new StatsCan report. Where do you think that comes from? Is that something bigger or is it all about the money? And in other data news, Stats Canada finds millennials are now the biggest age demographic in the country. What kind of impact do you think millennials might have on society at large? Beyond, of course, avocado toast. But the show begins with the top story of the day. Lynx Airlines is ceasing operations in Canada. Rob Westgate has more. Officials with the Calgary-based company announced Thursday evening that it is ceasing operations effective at 12.01 a.m. Mountain Time on February 26, 2024. That's after filing for creditor protection. Lynx Air has advised passengers with existing bookings to contact their credit card company and secure refunds for pre-booked travel. A statement issued by WestJet also acknowledged the immediate impact the news will have on passengers as well as employees, offering discounted fares for stranded domestic travellers and capping fares for Canadian repatriation flights on non-stop WestJet routes previously served by Lynx. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. Lynx only started operating about two years ago, so not a very long run for that low-cost airline. Here's another economic story for you. I feel like I've already said Stats Canada about a billion times in the first two minutes of the show, but there's more Stats Canada data for you because they're working hard at that building in Ottawa. It shows retail sales rose 0.9% in December. The raw number, $67 billion spent on retail in December. Michelle Zadikian breaks it down. The agency says in December, sales were up in five of the nine subsectors it tracks. Sales for the motor vehicle and parts dealer subsector rose 1.9%, helped by a 2.4% increase in sales at new car dealers. But that was offset in part by a 2.7% drop at automotive parts, accessories, and tire retailers. The agency says its early estimate of retail sales for January points to a decrease of 0.4%. Michelle Zedekian, the Canadian Press. And one more story for you, this one coming from the world of technology. Google's AI software is underwhelming users. Mike Debusky explains. 
When prompted to generate images of German soldiers from the early 40s, Google Gemini produces images of black men and Asian women, according to a report from The Verge. Other outlets found similar historical inaccuracies when asking the program to generate images of popes or the founding fathers. Now, Google says it's pausing Gemini's ability to create images of people. It also says the feature does generate a wide range of people, and that's generally a good thing, but it's missing the mark here. Mike DeBus ABC News. Ah, the robots are still learning. Let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Thursday, you were asked uh, in relation to Alberta Premier Danielle Smith giving a province-wide televised address. How would you feel about notable politicians doing frequent, long-form television, radio, and online appearances 33% of you said good, 34% of you said bad, and 33% of you said bah, I don't care. (laughs) Today's Daily Poll is going to be explored in the news panel in about 40 minutes or so. Millennials are now the biggest age demographic in Canada. I want to ask you a broader question question about the about portrayal you know we love talking about portrayal here how do you feel about the way generational cohorts are portrayed broadly in mass media are they portrayed fairly or unfairly at accessible media on x at accessible media inc on facebook perhaps a few examples are even the jab that i took about millennials and avocado toast i'm a Millennial myself, I've never eaten avocado toast. Of course, you also get a lot of um, stereotypes about boomers and the way they look at certain social issues, which sometimes is unreasonable. And for whatever reason, Gen X always gets portrayed as cool and aloof and not worrying about stuff. I feel like Gen X gets the best win here. Gen Z lazy, millennials lazy, sucking down millennial toasts, uh, avocado toast, spending their money badly. Gen X cool and uh, boomers portrayed as out of touch. That's the general portrayal. And I think it's pretty unfair. I I understand where maybe some of these stereotypes come from for the sake of telling a story or trying to counter a narrative. But I would say it's pretty much unfair. But I would tell you that mass media portrays portrays most large groups unfairly and uh, sometimes sets back the discourse. Alex Smythe, what do you think? Yeah, well, I I agree with a lot of what you said. I I think when it comes to Gen X, though, I I think it's uh, even a a broader issue of the they are always seen as the forgotten uh, generation. I don't think they get really portrayed all that much in mass media. I think we kind of did a really big jump from the boomer generation down to the millennials. And like uh, the stereotype goes with Gen X, they're always forgotten and left out of things. Well, I I feel the portrayal has kind of skipped them a little bit because you go from the biggest population of the boomer generation to now our generation, Dave, the millennial generation, which is now the biggest uh, kind of cohort. I I think that uh, there are a lot of you know, unfair representations, inaccurate representation, as you say. Oh, it's always the, uh, we're, we're lazy or we're entitled as a, a, a millennial generation. You know, there's there's not necessarily the nuance of, oh, this is what the struggles of what the millennial generation has to deal with in order to just create a living for themselves. Or, you know, even what, what are the uh, situations going to look like for Gen Z? Because, you know, anything that millennial generation is dealing with, it's only going to get worse for for Gen Z in terms of cost of living, things like that, and and how they're portrayed in mass media. I think that 
overall, it's very unfair, but uh, I think it's also very skewed in, in a few different ways. Yeah, but Alex, Gen Z can just become a bunch of influencers and affiliate marketers and have a bunch of side hustles, and they're going to be all uh, billionaires by the age of 30. Uh, let's get some Gen Z perspective. Amanda Shikarchi, you're filling in for Laura Bain today at the entertainment desk. Great to have you back aboard today. What do you think about the question? Thank you so much. Just very happy to he be here. It's very interesting because I feel like lots of the time it's always like, oh, Gen Z is like the TikTok generation or the Snapchat and texting. And sometimes when I'm watching something, I'm like, okay, these references are way too on the nose. Like, let's stop trying to like modernize any everything. But there's other times where I'm like, oh, this landed. This is really cool. Like, I saw the new Mean Girls, and I thought, like, you know, obviously nothing can beat the original, but I will say that the new Mean Girls was fun to watch. But, Dave, it's not just in mass media. Like, I have this conversation with my friend all the time that, like, even just, like, the difference between me and my 16-year-old sister, like, everything is going much faster. Like, mm -hmm. for me, like, I only got my first cell phone in middle school, and now people are getting phones <laughs> at like 9, <laughs> okay. 10 years old. <laughs> okay, I like that you phrase that. It shows, again, the little generational gaps that exist amongst our generations. And I see the smirk, the smirk on Alex's face, too, because yeah. I, I didn't have a cell phone until I was in college. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, no, no, but I, but I, I do, I, I do get what you're saying, Amanda. Right, that like even within the cohorts, there's differences in the cohort. Right, Alex, you and I represent slightly different parts of the millennial generation. Yeah. I remember uh, in the at the Ottawa Office Bureau when I eventually moved over to AMI Audio and we brought in a new bureau reporter. She was more representative of a younger millennial generation, and I'm a little bit more representat representative. Oh man, that one rolled off the tongue beautifully. <laughs> but I was a little bit closer to the older millennial where maybe my sensibilities are a little closer to Gen X and you could tell mm -hmm. that even in the 10 year to 12 year age gap that she and I had we were radically different people Alex like like the way in which yeah. we viewed the world was radically different it's, it's almost as if a, a generalization around a group of people with 10 to 12 to 15 years of an age difference isn't all that uh, representative <laughs> of uh, people's experience, Dave. I wonder, maybe it's the idea of generational uh, kind of uh, bracketing is not exactly nuanced and accurate to what people experience in their day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, <laughs> Getting a little philosophical here. All right, this will get picked up a little bit again in the news panel in about uh, half an hour's time. But in the meantime, you can vote at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in on TikTok at Accessible Media, on Instagram at Accessible Media Inc. You can send an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a ring, 1-866-509-4545, one 866 509-4545. You see, whatever generational stereotyping in terms of communication exists could work across that spectrum of points of contact. Coming up after the break, the reaction continues to pour in after Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny died in an Arctic prison last week. What are the bigger implications? Juita Gupta, Michelle McQuig, and I will share our thoughts. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The week culminates with the news panel. Brick by brick, the stories come together and the reaction pours in. Let's welcome in the panelists, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Good morning, Dave. And hello to Michelle. Hello, everybody. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. Nice to be back. All right, let's jump in to the world of international news. Reaction mm -hmm. continues to pour in after Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny died in an Arctic prison last week. Countries have been announcing sanctions against Russian officials, Canada, the UK, the US. Navalny had vocally opposed President Vladimir Putin for years. He'd been imprisoned multiple times. He even accused Putin of attempting to murder him several years ago. Joita, that is the thumbnail sketch of thumbnail sketches here. There could be a full hour just talking about the mm -hmm. life of Alexei Navalny. In fact, a documentary Truly. about him won an Academy Award a couple of years ago. But what do you want to explore here? Well, I think it is worthwhile to start off by talking about uh, how this has been a major story in the last week, generating headlines around the world. Um, we might start with talking about the international reaction to this. Um, not an entirely surprising turn of events, to be frank with you, uh, given that the that Putin does have a history of trying to um, eliminate uh, political dissidents and 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 rivals. But there are bigger questions to be asked about what uh, Navalny's death might mean for uh, the future of democracy uh, in Russia, uh, what it says about uh, Putin as a leader. Uh, and whether there are any implications on the war uh, on Ukraine, which is still ongoing. So there are many threads that can be tugged on here. Yeah, rapidly approaching the two-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. It's mm. uh, pretty remarkable, the mm -hmm. passage of time and how quickly that goes. Joita, you're right. The international reaction is probably a reasonable enough place to start here. Michelle, just mostly sanctions here. That, that's been generally, yeah. that's generally been the policy from countries that have been allied with, aligned and allied with Ukraine in the last couple of years and a lot of non-action from countries that have chosen to kind of sit this one out. So I just find at this point it's just more sanctions. I'm not super impressed. I'm not under I'm not I'm not overwhelmed by it. I just think it's kind of underwhelming. It's just more international <laughs> sanctions. Oh no, uh oh yeah. no, uh, Russian oligarchs can't uh, go to their beach house in uh, in Long Island anymore. Okay, in, they, uh, they in already not couldn't. Canada. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 okay, the Canadian Ambassador to Russia has been summoned now. Um, okay. What does that mean? I guess we'll find that out today. I believe that's happening today. Um, but yeah, I, I'm kind of with you that this plays out along predictable lines, but it also kind of, I think, might be a bit of a shot in the arm um, for, for, for this for just more on war effort. So I can always come back to that. But in terms of the international reaction, yeah, I, th I think we're seeing no major shifts. Traditional allies stay aligned. But I do think that, th that Navalny's death is a bit of a galvanizing force for those who oppose Putin. And I think that probably matters more domestically and with certain other countries. But I do think that that applies a little bit to the allies as well. And that there, there have been increasing questions about whether or not to keep funding Ukraine. 
uh, whether to send weapons, what kind of actions to take. I think Navalny's death may have forestalled some of those questions or, or some of that resistance and maybe put a bit of uh, fresh wind into the yeah. sails of those who want to support Russia. Yeah, it feels like that's been brambling for, for a while now. Uh, to mm -hmm. Joita, the international reaction, like I said, a bit underwhelming, not surprising. Sanctions has sort of been the modus operandi for about two and a half mm -hmm. years now, uh, rather than necessarily uh, a more a more direct approach. That said, if I were to sort of pull at one thread here, the politics of Alexei Navalny are not exactly uh, great politics. It, no. There's some pretty hardcore yeah. nationalist stuff there that, that makes it a bit unpalatable. So maybe that's where I'm a little bit surprised when you hear people like Joe Biden kind of praising Alexei Navalny. He did that in a speech yesterday, and it's like, is that really what you want to be doing, brother? Well, I think it's, you know, the choice of a, a rock, it's, you know, one is as a, as a Western leader caught between a rock and a, and a hard place in that right? even though Navalny's politics is not, you know, super progressive and maybe not like in other times deserving of heaps of praise uh, compared to Putin and what Navalny has come to represent to the West um as an opposition figure uh, to Putin, um, I think makes his life work and and consequently yeah. his death a lot more significant than it might have otherwise been. But you're right; the international reaction has been very underwhelming. Whether it's Canada calling the ambassador, the Russian ambassador, to be rebuked, um, whatever that's supposed to mean. <laughs> yeah, right. Like... Uh, but then you've got things like you know uh, the U the reaction out in the UK where they've frozen the bank accounts of six officials tied with um, with the prison complex. Their, their financial assets have been frozen, and then they've been told, "Well, now you can't travel to the UK," which isn't really a big deal because none of them was intending to travel to the UK in the <laughs> yeah, first right. place. So that becomes really symbolic. I'm what so I'm surprised <laughs> by Juita is if there's any officials left to be sanctioned in Russia after the last two and a half years. Well, that's the thing, and I think that's been uh, the majority of where Joe Biden is going with, uh, uh, and the and the U.S. sanctions are really targeting officials, um, you know, trying to seize condos and yachts and things like that. But I don't know if there's really too much more that can be done in terms of sanctions. We've seen sanctions uh, against Russia for the last two years or so because of the war on Ukraine, and Russia has found ways to sidestep, and so. Um, not that I'm going to discount sanctions as a viable option here, but you really have to wonder, given that this war has continued for as long as it has, and Russia's found workarounds to pretty much all of it, you got to really wonder if this was the most effective strategy. And certainly in response to Navalny's death, the plethora of, of sanctions that have been brought to bear are underwhelming, to yeah. say the least. It's been less than 12 months since... Uh, Evgeny Prigozhin and his Wagner group uh, mounted uh, yes. mounted an assault into Russia as in what appeared to be an attempted coup attempt. Now, uh, Prigozhin uh, met misfortune falling out a window uh, earlier this year. They really need to work on their building codes in Russia about these windows. It seems a lot of people keep falling out of them. Um, but but it does. And they've also got this this new this whole new disease called sudden death syndrome. Yeah, that I think we yeah. need to do our research on yeah. a bit more, huh? Definitely could require a little bit more scientific rigueur. Uh, but it, this this is another consolidation of Vladimir Putin's power. Joita, where yeah. do you think this leaves Vladimir Putin? 
Well, I mean, on the face of it, it is a consolidation uh, of, of his power. On, you're right. I mean, his opponents do have an alarming tendency to either fall from windows in very tall buildings and crash to their deaths. Or they, need more bungalows. Of... they need more bungalows in Russia. <laughs> or, or, you know, or there's like a spate of poisoning. Um, there was a, like, you know, so so on the one hand, it it is just distressing to it, it does cause a chilling effect uh in that people are told that if you speak out against the regime you may meet with a sticky end uh on the other hand uh, many commentators have noted that this is a sign of weakness and the more you continue to crack down on opposition the wider the opposition spreads and at some point it's going to become impossible to assassinate all your opponents Especially with someone with Navalny's profile, there's also a very high probability that with his death, Navalny will be will be will be turned into a martyr for the cause. And in 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 recreating Navalny as a martyr, uh, it it tends to breathe it it may breathe more life into opposition movements and leave Vladimir Putin feeling more vulnerable than if he had just left his opponent in prison. You know, Michelle, all those good headlines from his interview with uh, Tucker Carlson seem to have already gone away for uh, President Putin. But where do you think uh, where yeah. do you think this leaves Putin in terms of uh, consolidation of power or his standing uh, in Russia right now? So I agree with Joita, but in the long term, I, I do think that ultimately the opposition will reach a point where it can no longer be contained. It's kind of an inevitable thing with the passage of time. But I, I do think that striking at Navalny and getting rid of that particularly popular opposition figure is obviously meant to cement his position, but I think he's probably done so for the short to medium term. <clears throat> There's supposed to be a quote-unquote election in Russia coming up sometime soon. Uh, Navalny, there there have been talk of trying to have him have some kind of presence there, even though he was in this penal colony. Now that's pretty much all but assured that uh, Putin is going to be, quote, re-elected for six years. It's, of course, it's not an election in the sense that we understand it. But that path is really clear now. So I think that's pretty well settled his position for the short to medium term. But I completely agree with Joeda in that I really think I talked about galvanizing opposition internationally. I think that's really true back home. Mm. It's been fascinating and uh, frankly kind of upsetting to see all the, the the floral tributes that result in arrests for people and all the ways that the Russian public has been trying to pay some tribute to Navalny since his death because people love a good resistance narrative and he had a really good one. Yeah. Um, so I think martyr to the cause, all these things that Joita flagged before all sound very plausible to me, but I don't see it happening for a bit. Michelle, you raised the idea of what could be perceived as wavering support for Ukraine in this war. Certainly, it's become a political hot-button issue in the United yes. States right now. It, there are protests going on all over Europe right now that might not be a direct link to the Ukraine war, but certainly they're a connective point there in regards to uh, some of the inflationary costs and energy costs. Even in Canada, there's starting to yep. be just a little bit of chatter about the commitment, the international commitment to supporting Ukraine in the war. What are the bigger implications for Russia and the war in Ukraine as a result of this? That's where I think it will be interesting because I, I it is still 
I don't think this will take the te- take the temperature down all the way, but I do think it will sort of shore up those who say no. Clearly, see, we really do need to push back against Putin. Ukraine, Ukraine really does need our support. This is a really good narrative point for that camp, for them to mount their arguments, and I think it's probably going to work in some in in some form or other. So I, I think that at a time when Russia might have thought that it was starting to get the leg up on the PR war, this is a bit of a setback on that front, in in my estimation. But I, I want to preface all this by saying that I am not an expert on this part of the world. This is, this is more just sort of like inference on my part. Yeah. Uh, there may well be geopolitical factors that I'm – someone might be laughing at me right now. No, no, no. It's, it's, no, say, no, but, no. But based on <laughs> – no, no, come on. But based on just like common sense of it, like that—that's how I take this. Is that this is gonna this is gonna be grist for the mill for those who want to back Ukraine and make the case for why Putin can't be yeah. allowed to do what he does. Yeah. Again, I, I, I especially the south of the border side. I spend a lot of time looking at and examining American politics. The fact is, the outcome of their presidential election this year will radically impact whether or not and how mm-hmm. that country wants exactly. to continue supporting yep. Ukraine. Donald Trump. I mean, in the last couple of weeks, has said we don't care if NATO partners get invaded by Russia. So, I mean, like, I, there's a pretty clear narrative that is existing south of the border right now, which is uh, not unsurprising uh, based on the gong yep. show that is American politics. Joey, a bigger implication for Russia and the war in Ukraine? Well, I mean, Navalny's death, I think, really will, to some extent, uh, revitalize support for Ukraine um, from international partners. But also, I think, when when one considers the domestic situation in Russia and the fatigue that has uh, resulted from a war that no one had expected to last almost two years, I think his death is just going to galvanize anti-war sentiment at home. And while the death of others has not been as well publicized, there are also stories in the media about uh, Russian expats and um, and military defectors in places like Spain and you know all across Europe also being assassinated for their quote-unquote unpopular political views about the war. But I think one of the things we're going to see from Navalny's death is um, sort of a a revitalization of anti-war sentiment in Russia because this is, you know, it's costing them time, it's costing them troops, it's costing them the lives of young uh, Russian soldiers, um, and it's costing them a lot of money. Um, And I think what I would want to see in terms of the implications for the war I mean, the international reactions are obviously very interesting to to follow. But for me, where I'm most interested is to see what, if any, impact this has on um, opposition with, you know, inside Russia and within Russia with with people maybe taking more notice of the fact that there's greater dissatisfaction with the war than uh, the Kremlin might like mm-hmm, us to think. Mm-hmm. All right, let's uh, put this topic to bed. Coming up after the break, renters are more likely to experience financial distress. That's not necessarily surprising, but they're also more likely to experience loneliness, according to Stats Canada. Is there something bigger at play here, or is it just like Nelly said, all about the money? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's address the next topic. 
Stats Canada has released some data about renters across the country. Emily Javesky breaks it down. Statistics Canada says survey results over the last few years show renters are more prone to reporting lower quality of life than homeowners, especially in Vancouver and Toronto. The agency says young people surveyed in 2023 were less likely to report high overall life satisfaction and excellent or good mental health compared with older Canadians 55 and up. Those living in Toronto and Vancouver in 2021 through 2023 reported lower life satisfaction than others in BC and Ontario and also had a lower sense of belonging to their community. Emily Joveski, The Canadian Press. Thank you very much for that, Emily. Okay, guys, we have beaten the housing horse pretty substantially, but there's an angle here in regard to loneliness that renters are feeling at a higher proportion than homeowners that I think is ripe for a bit of a discussion. Michelle, where do you think that comes from? Where do you think the loneliness is coming from for renters in a different way than homeowners? Yeah, I've been mulling this over for a bit, and I can think of a few factors that I think might influence the picture, but probably don't account for all of it. So I'm really interested in everyone else's theories, too. I mean, we are talking about a a younger demographic and a more transient demographic by definition, people who come and go more often, generally speaking. Uh, Renters, in terms of ties to the community, because of that very, those same factors of of transients and perhaps potentially moving around more, the ties to the community, the weaker ties make a little bit of sense to me in that way. In terms of overall life satisfaction, it's interesting too. Again, the time of life, I think, really matters. These are people who are probably more likely to be living alone than than homeowners. Um, So I think all these things matter and probably affect the data somewhat but possibly not to all of it. Like I, I do find it a really interesting, striking figure as well, because it's a pretty big discrepancy. And I don't think all the factors that I've mentioned account for everything. The same with, with you know, again, renters are going to be feeling the affordability crunch more in all likelihood, especially in cities like Toronto and Vancouver. Maybe the places where they're living, the places they're renting are not as nicely built or just not as desirable homes or locations. And maybe that contributes as well. So there's a lot of factors, but we also are in a very turbulent time for mental health. So I have other questions too. (laughs) Yeah, I want to get to the generational side and the mental health side, particularly for young people in a moment. But Juita, more broadly, Mm. where do you think this notion of increased loneliness is coming from? Again, for renters specifically, Mm. right? Like it's Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's so interesting that the type of housing that you are paying for is Mm -hmm. on in aggregate impacting your loneliness factor. Mm -hmm. That fascinates me. But it's not all that surprising. I mean, if you think about neighborhoods, for example, right? If you're from a higher income, if you're bracket, uh, this is just you know, it's just again a bit of common sense. But again, I think something that we can all relate to. If you if you're from a higher income bracket and you're able to rent or buy in a in a in a better neighborhood, you might have better amenities, lower crime, you know, access to better schools, um, and consequently report better mental health. And so. Where you live in a particular city uh, has an impact on your mental health. And so it's not all that surprising that the kind of housing you occupy has an impact on your mental health. And affordability is a big part of it, uh, with renters spending quite a bit more than the uh, the CMHC mandated 30% after-tax income on rent. You know, people are spending quite a bit more than that. I think that's a bit of a pipe dream now. Um, but also... 
you know, because rents have become so unaffordable and there's so much housing insecurity, we talk about, you know, economic evictions. For example, in Ontario, if you live in a building that was built after November 2018, your landlord can basically jack up the rent as much as they want. So if they just want to get rid of you as a tenant, what do they do? They just, you know, jack up your rent, maybe 20% or something, because they can, Uh and suddenly you're out on your year. So Michelle's point about uh, the high rate of tr- the, the the high turnover amongst tenants is a really good one because part of it, yes, is life circumstances, but a lot of it comes down to the instability of the rental market. And if you've just never had the opportunity to get to know your neighbors because you're moving every two or three years, yeah. which I have heard from many friends is the case, then of course you're going to feel lonely. Of course you're going to feel like you're just stuck in your apartment. Uh, I'm sure the pandemic hasn't helped any either, right? Like you just, you had, everyone was dealing with mental health and isolation. And I think uh, with with renters and with tenants in particular, you have fewer social interactions and, and fewer uh, you just don't know the people around you. You don't have a sense of community. You you go to your apartment, you eat, you sleep, you, you go to work the next day and on and on. And also, uh, you know, it, it could be younger people, but it could be people across all age groups. Now, well, I think. No, 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 no. The data says that it's younger people. Like, let's be clear. Well, the data it says does. that it's well, younger people. Well, then, you know, younger people have other pressures as well, right? The student loans are a big one, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and trying to save up to buy a house and feeling like that is getting out of is you know you're feeling that is just increasingly out of reach for every you know maybe i'd save i don't know twenty thousand dollars a year and the price of a house jumps by another half a million well where am i am i ever going to get to buy a house i can i can see how that can add to a lot of depression as well so um it's a it's a it's not an entirely surprising outcome but it's also i think um uh an outcome that exists at the intersection of uh, failure in, in 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 housing policy and uh, and really the the fact that we haven't been able to create communities for renters and uh, you know find yeah. places where people could actually can belong. I, I think fundamentally I, that's the argument that there's something that's very temporary about being a renter. So why yeah. would you engage with your community? Go ahead, Michelle. And that's, this is why I want to, like, something you said right at the end, Joita, I think kind of ties back to Dave's question. You were talking about the questions that people face of, like, oh, my gosh, how am I ever going to afford a house? That wears people down. That, t- that mm-hmm. does take a toll on the mental health. And I think there is, like, there's a society narrative about success being defined in terms of homeownership. And I think there's a sense that people who are not owning homes, as it is yet, for whatever reason, internalize a sense of failure and that wouldn't do great things for my mental health or for one. Mm-hmm. Like, All right. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm going to leave the age demographic part of this conversation to the next segment because we're about to dive into millennials becoming the biggest mm-hmm. age group in Canada in the next segment of the show. So I want to jump ahead to a bigger thought here because I can also tell based on both your answers that we all agree with Nelly. hey, it must be the money. So the bigger mm-hmm. thought here. Toronto and Vancouver are cool cities. At least one of them is. But when do you think the affordability issue is going to reach a tipping point where folks end up splitting for places like Calgary, Ottawa, Fredericton, et cetera, Saskatoon, Winnipeg? Michelle, these are all incredible Canadian cities where the totally. cost of living is about half that of Toronto and Vancouver. And there's no shortage of economic opportunities in places like Calgary, Ottawa, and Fredericton. So I wonder at what point a tipping point gets reached here where people just say, forget Toronto and Vancouver. These cities are too big. They're too expensive. They're too sprawly. I can't find community. I'm getting the heck out of Dodge. 
I think it's already here. I mean, we are starting to see an exodus. We 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 saw it for sure in in the pandemic. Oh, the, the for sheer sure. Number yeah. of people exiting Ontario for Nova Scotia, for instance, like not even just Toronto. And the Nova Scotians um, are still angry about that. I totally, and I don't entirely blame. <laughs> Notice I didn't include um, Halifax on this list because housing has gotten out of control in Halifax. <laughs> well, I, but this is the thing. But we are already seeing housing creep in, in a lot of the bedroom communities around these cities, and now starting to spread to cities further afield. So I, if we're not there yet, I think we're really close. Um, I, I think you're far from alone, Dave, in, in your your sentiments on on one of the two big cities, and. Uh, and the housing prices also, like, even the people loved Vancouver and Toronto when they're desperate to live there, the economic realities are just such that they can't for a lot of people. And and those drive people. So yeah. that's what that's, I, I think we're already seeing it. I really do. So for an Ontario resident, it's a little bit different, right? If you just want to keep all your Ontario stuff, your driver's license, your ID card, your health card, et cetera, there are affordable places to go live. Windsor, I'm going to shout out Kingston. Mm-hmm. I'm going to shout out Brockville. I'm going to shout out Ottawa. Yep. Now, if you're in Vancouver, it's a little bit, if you're in Vancouver, it's a little bit different because Victoria is wildly expensive. Kelowna is wildly expensive. So there's almost mm-hmm. no reprieve in British Columbia. You're probably looking at making the move to Alberta, Calgary, Edmonton, Red Deer, et cetera, maybe even going deeper into the prairies, Saskatoon, Winnipeg, et cetera. But Joita, what do you think about the mm. bigger thought here? At what point the affordability issue might start stripping the identity away from these cities and taking the appeal away while still understanding this is where a lot of economic opportunity stands in these two I places? Think, yeah, I think the, the big thing here is the economic opportunities and whether there are com- comparable opportunities in other parts of the country. Uh, people will put up with a lot to have a good job. Um, and that might mean, you know, saying that I'm going to stay in Toronto or I'm going to live in Vancouver and I'm going to sacrifice having a big house with a backyard and I'm going to make do with that condo because the, you know, the head office of this company is in Toronto or it's in Vancouver. Um, there's just no getting away from that reality. Yes, you know, you see labor migration when there are economic opportunities in other parts of the country. A lot of people made their way to Calgary and to, uh, you know, Edmonton uh, and just to Alberta when the oil industry was booming. People saw opportunities there and they went there for work. And I think that while people do make the argument uh, that at some point, owing to the lack of affordable housing um, and the diminished quality of life in both Toronto and Vancouver, people are going to start to move away from those cities. And indeed, we do see a lot of that happening, um, people moving further and further further away um, and going to other parts of the country. As long as Toronto and Vancouver remain uh, economic hubs in Canada, I think you're going to find that people are willing to take a lot of financial distress on just to be able to say that they're close to the center of work, the yeah, center of yeah. you know education. I, I don't ever see people abandoning Toronto or Vancouver uh, and, and looking for greener pastures. I mean, I mean, take you know, take my example for instance. I'm adamant to remain in Toronto. Could I afford to buy a house or live, you know, outside of Toronto? Absolutely. But again, as a person with a disability, if I were to move away from the GTA, what sort of services am I going to have? Are we going to have the same access to paratransit? Are there going to be access to people who need PSWs? Do you get the same level of support? 
in, in, in so, communities. So again, so that's this, the, but, but the, Judah, this is why I'm pitching places like Calgary and Ottawa. I'm not pitching like the, the gray area between <laughs> Belleville and Toronto. I'm, yeah, I'm pitching yeah. real cities here. Like, the, let's, the, the let's take the center of the universe out of this. Like, there no, are no, 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 there no, is I, paratranspo in Ottawa. There are there PSWs is, in Ottawa. There, like, there, are, there is, there is. But here's the thing. Again, if you think about it from a disability standpoint, for a lot of people with disabilities, the family remains a source of care and a source fair. of support. That's fair. And that's, you know, that's where I come in as well. I, do I want to move to Calgary or Ottawa? Actually, I kind of do. I love Ottawa. I would love to live there. But I would also be quite a number of hours away from my parents and from people that I rely on, uh, you know, for help and support on a day-to-day basis. And I think that is a very big factor for people, especially when you think about people with disabilities, that we don't want to create a, a lot of distance if we can between ourselves and our families, you know, yep. provided we get along with them. Yep, that's a fair point for sure. <laughs> All right, Julie and Michelle, thank you both for this one. After the break, more Stats Canada data to mull over, this time all about generations. Stats Canada finds millennials are now the biggest age demographic in the country. We're number one. We're number one. What are the bigger implications, societal implications of millennials becoming the dominant age group? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown. It's the Now News Panel, a Friday edition of the show. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joyda Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic on deck. Stats Canada has been releasing a whole bunch of data this week, staying busy at that old building near Tunney's Pasture in Ottawa, including a nugget about how millennials are now the biggest age demographic in the country. We're number one. We're number one. Nojud Almaliz digs a bit deeper into the data. The average age in Canada dropped slightly between July 1st, 2022 and July 1st, 2023 for the first time since 1958. However, Statistics Canada says the number and proportion of people aged 65 years and older have continued to rise. The federal agency says the share of millennials and Generation Z is increasing, while the reverse is true for baby boomers and Generation X. Those trends have helped increase the share of the working age population, which increased in 2023 after steadily declining over the previous 15 years. Nujud in Press, Ottawa. All right, Michelle, you started nerding out on this data the second it got dropped. <laughs> Why did it jump out to you? Uh, possibly because I grew up in a house with a demographics nerd and boom bust, <laughs> boom bust and echo like actually literally shaped some of our family planning decisions growing up. Like, yeah, this is this is deeply entrenched in, in quick DNA. But I do find this interesting. The fact is demographics nerd or not, the baby boom generation has had a huge impact and shaping society for for decades now and we are officially turning the page i still think boomers are going to be the driving force behind a lot of societal developments for the next while but we are officially now in a new, in a new chapter and apart from our insufferable smugness and our plethora of avocado um gen y <laughs> is now like, like like this is it like the millennials are are, are now going to be the the or not, not, not immediately, but I think are, are, are soon going to be the sort of driving force in society. Mm. And demographic trends are interesting, frankly, and, and, and can or should be used for guidance on a whole lot of issues. So I, I 
yes, I was scratching my own geeky itch here, but I also thought that it might be enough for us to, to all pitch in on because because it affects so many things, it might, st- might strike us all differently too, right? Like demographics mm-hmm. are extremely wide ranging. So, Michelle, I want to stay with you here. I want you to throw a little bit more chum in the water for the sharks named Joita and Dave to uh, dive into here. Okay. The implications, what are the implications that you project about millennials becoming the biggest cohort in the country? So I, I'm I, first I'm seeing that it's not a much, it'll be interesting to see when millennials are truly entrenched as the primary sort of decision makers, whether the priorities that millennials claim to espouse like climate change get more prominence than they have to date. But honestly, in the short term, I'm a lot more interested in things as the baby boom generation continues to age. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm very interested to see, I've always been interested to see, for instance, whether disability would start becoming a more active part of the conversation when we have a bigger segment of the population that is aging and is identifying as disabled. Uh, I'll be really interested to see if that starts to come together. Uh, Long-term care crises and and availability and healthcare system capacity, all these things, many things that we've talked about, housing, stuff we've all talked about. Canada pension plan. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So many things, right? All of these things do at some point should have to get passed through the lens of demographics and aging populations and changing populations. And I often don't really see that lens applied or hear those threads tugged on. And I've always kind of wondered why, because it's so basic. Mm. Like, Joita, I, I don't even think you need to look that far down the road in terms of implications, because if I, I believe sincerely that millennials already have had a pretty significant impact on society, particularly societal mm-hmm. issues. Uh, it's fair to argue that the current prime minister, Justin Trudeau, is someone who courted a millennial vote to reach power mm-hmm. in 2015. Yeah. And I would say the 2021 election, I've mentioned this to you guys before, a lot of my millennial friends who have young families ended up voting for the liberals simply on the daycare platform. So I think mm-hmm. about legalization of cannabis, I think about daycare, I think about those mm-hmm. things as being yeah. not driven solely by millennials, but being something that millennials are deeply aware of. And I would also say the normalization in the way that we talk about mental health, that was something that's largely been driven by the millennial Mm -hmm. generation already. So, Juliet, I don't even think you need to look that far down the road to think about some of the societal implications of millennials. Mm -hmm. But I start to wonder about the flexing of economic power, because even if millennials are becoming the biggest cohort in the country, a lot of the money still rests in the hands of the boomer, the boomer generation and the Gen X generation. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, what, I mean, this means a couple of things with millennials being the largest population segment in the country uh, and being of working age, they are the ones propping up CPP and the long-term care sector and other and, and healthcare, right, as the tax paying base. Um, and that's going to mean that there's a dependency or a relationship between the baby boomer generation and and, and the millennial generation, right? But uh beyond that, I think on the economic front, um there are many things that millennials have griped about, being locked out of the housing market being one of them. And I would be very interested to see what the implications of the transfer of wealth 
from the from the baby boomer generation. Yeah. I mean, as people's yeah. parents get mm, older and yes. they die, and their kids, like people like us, inherit money or inherit housing, is that the only way you're actually going to get a toehold in the housing market? If you can, you know, lean on mom and dad, or lean on your inheritance, or lean on. Um, you know, inheriting a home. So the, what are the implications of that transfer of wealth? Because the baby boomer generation uh, is by far doing much better economically than the millennials. I think there's a lot of research to back that up. But as time goes by, I think we are going to see a tremendous transfer of wealth. And I would be very interested in knowing what the implications of that transfer of wealth actually end up being. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing is, you know, in Canada, we, we've dealt with our skewed demographics by attracting a lot of immigrants. And now mm. that you have uh, millennials making up the majority of our working age population, I would be very curious about the implications for immigration. Are we going to have that same need to bring in immigrants? Uh, you know, what kind of immigrants would we want to bring in? You know, what's going to be, uh, you know, what is, where are we going to target our immigration given the changing demographic situation in Canada? These are questions that are very interesting to me, but questions that I readily acknowledge are beyond my pay grade. But always <laughs> in Canada, we have shored up using immigration when, you know, when our birth rate has declined and, you know, birth rates are still comparatively speaking, pretty low. So. Yeah. Very low. Yeah, very yeah. low. Uh, and that might have something to do with that wealth transfer that you're talking about. Yes. Because if you have to wait till your 50s or 60s to engage in some kind Buy of wealth transfer, then yeah. you're not going to have a family, uh, most likely, or it's going to be a much mm -hmm. more tricky situation. Now, here's where, even though a lot of what we've already said is supported by data, this leads once again into the bigger thought about generational portrayal. This is, in fact, the daily poll today at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media in on Facebook, Michelle, that there are some generalizations that are sometimes backed up by data. All baby boomers are wealthy. That's not correct. <laughs> there yeah, are there yeah. are some very individualistic uh, lucky ones, but not all of them in aggregate are doing extremely well. And then, there's no the no, and then there's the notion of like <laughs> avocado toast. And then there's the notion of lazy Gen Zs who are aloof exactly. or cool Gen Xers. And I, and I do wonder sometimes that the way a story like this gets talked about relies too heavy, heavily on the way in which generations and cohorts are broadly generalized in mass media and social media as well. I'm going to include social media there too. I, I think you're right, Dave. I, and I will say this as the one who made the avocado toast joke. I'll, I can, you, I, it, it is a short cut that society takes. It's not ideal. I am glad though that for the, the, the meat of this conversation, we did generally stick to real data. But I think you're right. There are lots of really unhelpful shortcuts um, that, we as a society, and specifically on this panel, that we as, as disabled people who have been subject to to overly broad and unhelpful yeah. stereotypes oh, yeah. before really ought to keep in mind. Um, but in terms of these demographic issues, I, I think that there's so many of them and they're so fundamental that they do kind of cut through the noise on some of this stuff. And I think... I, I I feel we've been able to have an adult conversation about this. And I think when it comes right down to the nitty-gritty of how these demographic trends play out in real life and when we're talking about real people um, and, and when these demographic groups cease to be a little more abstract, then I think we do get into some more productive ways of talking about 
the human beings at the center of these conversations. Yeah, Juliet, yeah, I'm, I'm inclined mm-hmm. to land in the same space as Michelle here that I just, I, I don't like the way mm-hmm. that our generation collectively gets portrayed, even considering there are different parts of the millennial generation that are radically different. I shared the story in the first segment of the show of a coworker who was about 12 years younger than me. I'm an old millennial, she was a young millennial. Our worldviews were completely different, not just because we were different people, but because even within the cohort, there are sub-cohorts. Yeah, Very much of course. So. Um, I think it depends on what conversation you're trying to have, uh, why you're trying to have the conversation, and who your target audience is. Uh, I think if you're trying to talk anecdotally or if you're trying to uh, tell human interest stories, then it's worthwhile keeping in mind that overgeneralizing an entire generation can be deeply disquieting and that we lose much of the nuance um, in that there is, as you both acknowledge, diversity within a particular generation. So that's one story that you could be telling. Um, You know, for example, if you think about people who grew up during the Second World War, right, and people who want to now have accounts of those stories, the reason the, 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 the accounts of individuals who lived through the Second World War, maybe as children, uh, are interesting and rich is because each of those accounts might be very different, even as they share commonalities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then if you tell a different kind of story, which is a policy story, then I think it is helpful to generalize in in that it is worth noting that baby boomers made a lot of money that has economic implications that has policy implications. Uh, it, one of the reasons, uh, you know, millennials um, have... Like for example, you know, you could argue the millennials, at least many people my age, have massive student debt that they're still paying off. Uh, the cost of post-secondary education has continued to skyrocket. So Generation Z will also be paying off massive student loans. There are all these implications for people not being able to buy housing um, and, and, and having a way to settle down in their communities. We talked about renters who are younger being lonelier, and that has in policy implications. So when you're talking about the bigger policy or system-wide issues, then yeah, okay, fine. Then you lose some of the nuance. You lose some of the individuality. And yeah. you, you tell a, a, a generic story. But you better, so but you, but you better do it earnest. Like you better do it in earnest and like in good faith, and, and in good faith in good right? Faith. Like, yeah. Cause, yeah. Cause how many, how many yeah. articles do you pop up? Like just surfing the web every day. It's Netflix and Starbucks. that's keeping millennials out of the housing market. It is not Netflix and Starbucks keeping yeah, millennials out of the housing market. Yeah. You know, it's not. And I mean, it's a form of, dare I say it, victim blaming, uh, because I actually sat down and I did the math because I uh, I have struggled with this as, a, as someone who would like to buy a better house and said, OK, well, what if I had never gone on a holiday? What if I'd never eaten out? What if I'd never spent a cent on Netflix? What if I just took everything I earned, like everything yeah, I earned every and, and just put it in a pot? I would still not be able to afford a house. Like I actually sat down and ran the numbers and just to assuage my my guilt. And if that's true for me, and I'd like to think that I have a reasonably good income and I work hard, then you know it's it's equally. But it's also but there are also other implications. So I think um, you know people putting off having children, for example, because of the fear of climate change, uh, especially with millennials or mm. not having a yes. place to settle to settle down. That has that has uh, implications for the future as well. Anyways, yeah. I think I got a bit sidetracked. There. <laughs> no, it's okay. That's 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 the, that's the joy of this panel. See, this is why I brought up demographics. They're yeah, fun because we're a bunch of nerds. Uh, Joey, to sure have a lovely are. weekend. <laughs> Thank you. (laughs) Michelle, you have a nice weekend as well. 
Thank you. You That's Joita Gupta, the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio, and Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, the British Columbia government dropped their budget yesterday. I've got a whole bunch of reaction for you in the regional news update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, February the 23rd, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the 2024 Audi Awards are taking place next month. Karen McKay from the Centre for Equitable Library Access tells you about a few of the nominees. And in the music world, Kings of Leon are back with some new tunes. Amanda Shikarchi has the scoop on their new album. I had a chance to listen to the new song this morning. I'll have to wait to hear my feelings about it because the hour begins with the regional news update. Starting in British Columbia, BC's government unveiled their annual budget yesterday. The budget forecasts a $7.9 billion deficit. Terry Theodore has details. Conroy says these are extraordinary economic times and the government's choice was to cut services, increase taxes or grow the deficit. The budget includes an average $445 payment for eligible families and the BC Family Benefit and there's a one-time average electricity credit of $100. Conroy says the payments aren't about it being an election year. And we have the responsibility to people in this province and so because we have the responsibility we're going to make sure that we provide the services that we need. The government will also fund one cycle of in vitro fertilization. Terry Theodore, the Canadian Press. Let's get some reaction from opposition parties. BC United leader Kevin Falcon is concerned with the spending. I don't know any families out there that just keep cranking up the credit card, spending recklessly without regards to whether the work's actually being done properly around their home or whatever they're spending it on. That doesn't happen in the real world. It only happens in NDP world. And, uh, you know, that, that gives me... Uh, frankly, grave concern about the future of this province. Apparently, Kevin Falcons uh, never met an actual human. Uh, they love to crank up the credit mm -hmm. card spending. Here's what Green Party leader Sonia Furstenau had to say about the budget. And it's astonishing to me that after the hottest year on record in, in this world, we have three political parties who are denying the impacts, the costs, not only in money, but in health of climate change. And here's BC Conservative leader John Rustad. What we're seeing, quite frankly, in this budget is uh, what I think is a completely unrealistic picture designed simply to try to get votes. And I think, quite frankly, the voters of British Columbia should see it for what it really is, which is not putting people first, which is not putting our future first, and is not doing anything to be able to address the affordability of groceries or housing or rent. That's your look at the regional news. Let's talk about sports with Brock Richardson. Brock, baseball spring training is underway. The L.A. Dodgers decimated the San Diego Padres in the first game of the spring training calendar yesterday. 
But Brock, before you and I talk about baseball in earnest, Major League Baseball has signed a new partnership with Nike to design the uniforms this year. And after a couple days of spring training, the players are concerned about two things. Number one, the material is so thin, the pants are see-through, so their underwear is showing through the pants. And the second issue is they have not produced enough, so they're, quote, running low on pants at spring training facilities. Brock, your reaction to baseball players potentially being pantsless. No, I, that's literally what I, what I was just going to say. So what you're telling me is we're, we're soon going to just see players being being pantless oh boy just players out there in their boxer briefs and their speedos yeah yeah i mean at least they're fit you know that that can be a positive but that's that made my morning i i I like this it's uh never thought i'd hear that on a friday morning i've always i've I've always wondered about mandated uniforms Uh, the nba changed their uniform provider a couple years ago to fanatics and the players despised the uniforms they said they were flimsy they were tearing apart you competed uh, at the national level with oftentimes provided gear. How much say did you get in the gear that they were putting on your body and the customizations that you wanted? Zero. We, we, I mean, we had, you know, a little bit of say of like, would you like this logo or that logo? But like some of the material that I used to wear, like the, the cotton sort of like the thinner cotton stuff, like when you sweat in that stuff, it's like, Oh boy, this is not good. So some of the stuff is like this wasn't practical, but no, absolutely no say in in what we got. And it was just like here's what we're wearing this year, and that's it. So it's yeah, it's it can be tough, but see through pants mm, that can be a challenge. I've never and understood. Then, I've never understood why they make baseball players wear pants. It's a summer sport. It's like a million degrees outside. Why are you wearing pants? This makes no sense to me. Now, I will say one of the reasons why the pants are so thin is because Nike was trying to use a more breathable material. So there is like a little bit of there's a little bit of rhyme and reason to this. But you almost wonder if they'd maybe, you know, had a couple test pairs here where it's like, "Hey, wear some black underwear underneath these pants and see if your underwear showing yeah right like and i think that's the small sort of stuff that people don't hopefully not too small they just think okay exactly right like like it's just it's just the things that people don't think about and and it's one of those details of like you don't want your underwear showing on national television like no thanks oh don't tempt me brock don't tempt me i'll stand up right now we'll get the show canceled in one foul swoop uh brock okay let's uh be a little more earnest about this tell me about the toronto blue jays uh look it's uh everyone's being optimistic it's it's this is the time of year where you hear this is going to be the best the best i'm in the best shape of my life i'm very interested to see what happens with alec manoa is he better is he not was it a blip who knows i don't know this is where i sit back dave and i go I don't know what stock to put in spring training. Like I like watching it because you know you look and you say, "Oh, it's nice outside. It's it's good." But until we play the actual games, I don't know what it means. Like everyone's optimistic. We're all good. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Same thing in the best shape of his life. You know, let's see what that means. But I don't know. This team could be a playoff team, and they could they could really hit themselves in the face again i like it's really hard to know what what's gonna be well it's it's been it's been what playoffs for the last five seasons for the blue jays yeah 
Yeah. But exactly. then but then first so, round but then first round exits every time. Exactly. So and I know I'm not giving the best sport analytic answer, but I, I really truly don't know what to tell you about this team. I mean, they could go and win, you know, ninety game, ninety plus games, which would almost assuredly get them a playoff spot in the wild card at least. But then they could also win a hundred games if things go well. I think the biggest thing this year is can they hit and do they do they hit better? Are they more patient? Are they are they better approaches? Like that was the big thing last year was that they were just swinging out of their shoes. And I just want to see them this year be a little bit more patient. We've changed coaches to hopefully help with the hitting and help with all that. But at the end of the day, the players have to put it all in and put it all together. So be very interesting, but I don't put a lot of stock in spring training, Dave. It, it what really, about you as well, a consumer? Considering the expectations were quite high last year and they fell short of the expectation, they didn't necessarily improve the team in the offseason. Maybe it's about equivalent. Maybe it's a little bit less, but it, it, they didn't necessarily improve the team. So it's possible they end up positively regressing. They end up doing some progress and actually ex and moving a little bit closer to the expectation mark that was put towards the Blue Jays last year. But it does feel like the starting pitching rotation is lacking something. You're right to identify Alec Manoa, their 25-year-old starting pitcher who had a disastrous year last year is there room for a bounce back there or is that the pitcher who he is perpetually struggling and being sent down to the minors and called back up so that certainly is a question mark there are some marquee free agents who are still available on the market if the toronto blue jays and their management and their ownership group were committed to winning they could go add a starting pitcher like Blake Snell, who's still on the free agent market, despite winning the Cy Young Award last year as the best pitcher in the National League. Cody Bellinger, still an available hitter to go sign if they wanted to. A former World Series champion and a consistent 30 to 40 home run guy. There are things this team could do if management and ownership actually cared about winning. Yeah, I mean, I would lean towards the Blake Snell signing before I would go, you know, uh, Bellinger. I think that that would just help kind of, you know, give a little bit of uh, more depth to the pitching that's, that's you know. That well, just depth. Stays. It's elite. It's elite. The guy won the Cy yeah. Young last year, Brock. He's one of the best pitchers yeah. in baseball. Exactly. And the fact that I would, I like. I've wondered why he's still on the market, to be honest with you, but that's just my thoughts. But I, I don't know. I just, after we didn't we didn't get uh, the signing that we wanted to this year, and there was the big fish. Um, Shohei Otani. The Blue, Shohei Otani. The Blue Jays just kind of went and said, well, we're just going to remain status quo because we didn't get what we wanted and we're going to take our baseball and go home. And since then, they've just kind of said, we have a good team and, and we're going to add pieces here and there and that's fine and we're going to be fine with it but I just think they're more focused on making the ballpark look great as opposed to the team on the the field and I think it's got to go hand in hand in my opinion it has to I you know again I'll reiterate this winning seasons for the last five years going to the playoffs for the last five years like do you remember what it was like being a Blue Jays fan from 1997 to like 2014 like like the team was like last place in the division every single year so I, sometimes I wonder Brock if 
a little bit of sustained moderate success is still better than nothing. Although I also wonder if it's typical Toronto sports fan. Y'all always want the moon. You know, the only thing I really remember from that time period that you just outlined was I would tune in every five days. Why? Because Roy Halladay would pitch. And that was the best baseball game you'd get from the team every five days was Roy Halladay would pitch. That's the only bright spot. And I think you're right to point out that Carlos that, Delgado well, would like a word. Yeah, I'm sure he would. But <laughs> I, as a kid, I, I really enjoyed watching Roy Halladay play. And I, I really, I really enjoyed watching what he would do. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're right in outlining the fact that Toronto sports fans want the moon and, and sometimes they even fall short of the stars. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's just, that's the life of a Toronto sports fan. If we don't get a championship, then we go home and we cry and we wallow in our in our in our misery. Like if the Leafs don't do anything, I, again throwing the Leafs on this. If the Leafs don't do anything in the playoffs this year, everyone's gonna look and say, "Oh, we did it again." Instead, they're gonna not say, "Well, they had a really great regular season and they went on a five six game winning streak, whatever it ends up being." Because all that everyone cares about is what did you do in the playoffs. Nobody cares about the regular season when the playoffs is done. Yeah, it's a fair point. All right, Brock, you know one of the greatest professional opportunities I've ever had was to cover a couple of Toronto Blue Jays spring training sessions in 2016 and 2017. I made a small documentary for AMI about the 2016 spring training experience. You can ask me one question about my time on the ground in Dunedin, Florida. What do you want to know? What What's the vibe like in Dunedin, Florida? Like, is it as chill as it perceives to be? I was there the opening couple days of training camp. It was super chill and jovial. The players were in a good mood and laughing. The journalists were in a good mood and laughing. The uh, staff were in a good mood and laughing. You could really tell it was kind of like the first day of school. Everybody getting back together, joking around, dancing, just getting stretched out. It was super, super fun. And I got to spend a lot of one-on-one time with uh, several players and several coaches. A few of them made fun of my haircut, rightly so. It was the worst haircut I ever had. And uh, we had some good laughs. Uh, Former uh, Blue Jays outfielder Dalton Pompey needed to borrow my sunglasses at one point because uh, he he was getting sun in the face and he needed protection. So he borrowed my sweet pair of Maui gym sunglasses. I was happy to make that sacrifice for him. Uh, Baseball players are awesome. Baseball media is incredible. I got a chance to hang out with people like uh, Shai Davidi and Rich Griffin. And I had a chance to hang out with Scott MacArthur. Just amazing, amazing people on the ground. I was blown away by the experience i would uh, love to do it again one day brock thank you for this enjoy uh, the opening weekend of spring training baseball will do same to you talk to you on monday that's brock richardson at the ami sports desk coming up after the break kings of leon they're back with some new music amanda shikart she has the scoop on their new album and i've got some thoughts on the single that dropped late last night You'll hear them in just a couple minutes on Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Remember, if you ever want to reach out to the show... Give me a phone call. Talk to Dave. Say hello. 
1-866-509-4545. You're not actually talking with me. You're leaving me a voicemail. But I promise if you say nice things or even mean things, it'll end up on the air. Let's turn to the world of weather with Alex Smythe. Alex, you're about to say mean things to me. You're telling me I got to put my, uh, my, my spring clothes away. Well, not for long, Dave. Uh, that will be the kind of positive tease I'll provide because we've had such a great week in terms of the temperatures in southern Ontario in the back half of the week, getting up to the double digits. It was 10 degrees. It was 10 degrees yesterday. It was amazing. I know. It, I got it really was sweaty. Great. I was very sweaty by the end of the day. Well, it's going to be a bit of a, a chilling period. It's going to be a bit of a plunge. The winter jacket's going to have to come back out this weekend and even starting today because a, a cold front is coming into the region. So basically from uh, places like Ottawa all the way down to Windsor, you're going to really see that chill. So uh, basically Ottawa, as I mentioned, they're set to have a high of three degrees today, but by tomorrow, it's going to plunge to minus 17 degrees. Ottawa it, it has yet to hit um, the minus 20 mark this year, and there are concerns that they may not hit it at all this year, but basically this cold front is the best chance that they may dip below that benchmark. For Toronto, it's set to be minus 12. Over in Sudbury, on, uh, Alberta, uh, Sudbury Ontario, they will hit the minus 20 mark tomorrow. <laughs> may as well call them Sudbury, Alberta at minus 20. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be a frigid time over in Sudbury, but they are used to it. Uh, down in Windsor, they're going to be on the uh, kind of the warmer side of things. They're expected to get to minus 6. So, as I said... There, it, it's it's not going to last too long. So even though you are going to get those frigid temperatures by mid next week, we're going to be back into those double digits. So it's, it's not necessarily a prolonged uh, um, kind of system, it's just more of a blip of cold weather to remind you we are still, in fact, in winter, Dave. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Not a problem. <laughs> That's Alex Smythe at the weather desk uh, getting growled at by me. I b suppose I did not dress appropriately uh, this morning for what could be my walk home uh, this evening, but we'll make do. I I'm blubbery like a bear. I'll make it work. In one minute, the Kings of Leon are back with a new album. Amanda Shkarchi will tell you more in the entertainment report. But first, a U.S. spacecraft has landed on the moon. What's old is new again in Tech Trends with Norman Hall. Houston, Odysseus has found his new home. The landing put the U.S. back on the surface for the first time since NASA's famed Apollo moonwalkers. But this time, the spacecraft was built and managed by a private firm, Intuitive Machines. CEO Steve Altimus acknowledged there were glitches. I know this was a nail-biter, but we are on the, on the surface, and we are transmitting, and uh, welcome to the moon. Odysseus guided itself toward the surface for a relatively flat landing spot among all the cliffs and craters near the moon's south pole. I'm Norman Hall. Thank you very much, Norman. A bit of nostalgic music news. The Kings of Leon are back. Amanda Shikarchi has the scoop. Hello, Amanda. Hi, Dave. Thank you so much for having me back. Our pleasure. So the Kings of the Kings of Leon released the date for their ninth studio album. It is called Can We Please Have Fun? And the lead single is out now. It's called Mustang, and it's very nostalgic. The album is out on May 10th. 
But to get a sense of the nostalgic sound, here's a clip from Mustang. There's a Mustang in the city, and it's calling me out. Are you a Mustang or a kitty? What are you all about? Dave, I love this. It's literally like a modern version of You Somebody. But what are your favorite Kings of Leon songs? Well, can I react to the new song first? Because I listened to it this morning. Yes, please do. I uh, found it to be a little bit uninspired. I, I I used to love the Kings of Leon, and I thought a couple of their first albums were super, super cool. But it just kind of feels like they're playing the hits. They're repackaging the hits and not really finding new ground. Now, I know a devoted viewer or listener will accuse me of saying, but Dave, you loved the new Green Day album. It's true. I did. But Green Day had something to say on their new record. This song was just a bunch of noise and a bunch of guitars and just sounded like the same old, same old Kings of Leon without necessarily wanting to drive something home. No pun intended there on the old uh, Mustang friends. Yeah, Amanda, I, you know, it's 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 good. It sounds great. I bet it's going to be an earworm. But to me, I found it to be a little bit uninspired. That said, listening right now on headphones versus listening through my phone speaker this morning, kind of dug it a little bit more through headphones. Nice. Yeah, so I never religiously listened to Kings of Leon, but I love their song, You Somebody. So to me, um, okay, You Somebody is still the classic, but I'm vibing with this. It's catchy. I think what I love most about Kings of Leon is their guitar solos are always just so captivating. Like, I, I love it. Yeah, the, the, some of their early work, there's a song called Tapered Jeans Girl that says this incredible, like, drum beat off the top where the guitars kick in and pan across the headphone. Like, they were a band that really were doing something creative in the mid-2000s when rock music had somewhat lost its way. I still remember the first night I ever heard the song Revelry. I was hanging out at a cottage in the Laurentians north of Montreal and over the speakers revelry plays and sometimes you just get transfixed to a song where you're breathing fresh winter air having a beautiful cocktail with amazing friends and that song creates a memory within you an actual feeling within you it's like your brain on music it's it's one of the reasons why music is one of the purest forms of art Totally. What you described there is why I find music so special. Like I have so many times where certain songs that I listen to will always be associated with like certain times, like Ed Sheeran's Divide album. That was will always be for me associated with my final year of high school because it came out with March of that year. So it's like graduation, like knowing you're taking the next step. So that's what I usually yeah. associate it with. Yeah. So I totally relate to you here um, about what you said about Kings of Leon. Speaking of music and your love for it, one of the reasons why you've been away from the show the last couple of months is some work you were doing at CBC and you produced a special documentary that aired on CBC earlier this week. The show was called Playing by Ear. There's a short clip from the show on with you on the piano beside your CBC producer, Eric Van. Let's take a listen. 
I'm here with my producer, Eric, and we're going to play a game. Amanda here claims that she has perfect pitch, which means she can hear a song once or twice and be able to play it immediately. So, yeah, like she said, we're going to play a game. I'm going to pick a random song, and we're going to see if she can play it on the piano. All right, challenge accepted. Okay, just so our listeners are aware, Amanda has no clue what I'm about to play right now. darn good there, Amanda. Sounding good on the piano, sounding good with the singing as well. I imagine this special wasn't just an opportunity for you to show off your musical skills and brag across the country, though. Yeah, so this clip um, here was to kind of show how I have perfect pitch because, like, as you saw, I can take any song and learn by, by ear. But yeah, this special really showcases blind and low vision musicians and how to find success in music. And I wanted to tell this story through having guests with a variety of life experiences and composing music in different genres. So, for example, we have OG Cree rapper Matt Mack, and he talks about his experience being a self-musician and how music really helped him cope with his blindness. We also have Lachi, who is the co-founder of Ramped, recording artists and music professionals with disabilities, and she is a huge advocate for the disability community. So stories like that, I really wanted to show, you know, that people with disabilities we can make it that even though this industry is competitive and that there are some barriers, there has been change and that people will continue to create this change for the better. Amanda, I know you are passionate about music. You're showing off that perfect pitch. You're obviously doing some work here on the broadcast side of the media industry. Where are you at in regards to maybe pursuing your own musical career? I definitely want to continue pursuing music, um, even if it's pop, music or film scoring i think it's still a deep love for mine of mine so i want to try to incorporate it as much as i can super cool hey amanda thank you for taking the time today thank you for filling in for laura bain talk to you soon thank you so much for having me that's amanda shikarchi at the entertainment desk the best way to access amanda's special is to search for playing by ear on cbc so head over to your favorite search engine playing by ear on cbc coming up after the break is sitting really the new smoking alex smythe will somewhat fire that question around the round table this is now with dave brown on ami tv
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Alex Smythe, your roundtable topic today. I'm about to feel very accused by it. Don't worry, Dave. I am as well because there is a new study that has found that people who sit too long at work are more likely to suffer from cardiovascular disease and death in general than those who are less sedentary. So the study out of Taiwan found heavy sitters are 34% more likely to die from cardiovascular disease and 16% more likely to die from all causes than those who are on their feet more. Cardiologist Tamana Singh highlights the importance of movement throughout the day. If we don't stay on top of movement, physical activity during the course of the day on a very consistent basis, we lose the uh, empowerment that we have to keep our blood pressure well controlled, lower our cholesterol, manage our blood sugar and prevent things like diabetes, and of course, manage our weight. Yeah, and so there is obviously a lot to unpack here. And I wanted to find out from the roundtable, starting with a simple question. How much do you sit during oh, no. the workday? Oh, no. Ramya, let's start with you. With the confessions, um, I sit a lot during the day, and honestly, the, the the things that I used to do in the office just to move around when I was working there, uh, like through the day fully, um, I don't even do that as much because I'm familiar with my home and and I can spend like three to four hours just sitting before I actually get up and go to the office, and that's pretty much the movement I'm getting. To the day. <laughs> yeah, then we're sitting, yeah, yeah. right? Like that's literally my movement is going from home to the office and the afternoon before Kelly and Rumia starts and then I sit for another two hours there and then I move to get back home but Alex like when I was working at the office I deliberately every half an hour or 45 minutes or so get up and go to the kitchen to get water and refill something come back distract, yeah exactly. distract someone right and socialize and stand for a bit and then I thought I was being super awesome by getting a standing desk but I got one of those adjustable desks so now I, it's, <laughs> just a desk. oh it's awful uh, I dare anyone to top this horrible lifestyle choice ooh, I'm close <laughs> Romeo. I'm close my during my eight-hour workday I'm probably on my keister for about seven and a half of those hours and the Rough, only time Dave. I'm moving is to go outside and get fresh air or go to the kitchen and get more coffee also not good for my blood pressure. Although, you know what we should start doing, Ramya? When you come in here in the morning and I'm here in the afternoon during commercial breaks, I'm just going to yell at you to do some squats. Just do some Actually, air squats. Yeah. Yes. Let's do it. We'll do push ups during commercial breaks instead of testing audio with guests. Let's just start with standing, huh? Uh, Remember oh, yeah. when the we'll Apple do... Watch used to nudge us to <laughs> stand? stand that was helpful. Yeah. Uh, Nazreen, how often are you on your keister during the workday? I'm so happy to hear that I'm not alone because I was judging myself reading this email this morning from Alex <laughs> saying, okay, this is what we're going to talk about. Um, I said a lot, but uh, I do have arthritis and osteoporosis, so I do get stiff a lot as well. So I try to get up here and there, even, and I, I get you, Remia, like working from home, it's not as many, there's not many laps going around my yeah. apartment, my tiny apartment. So I do have an adjustable desk. I feel like it's one of my favorite purchases as well. So I do stand up quite a bit just to stretch out, you know, avoid stiffness throughout the day. Um, and uh, I've even seen people on TikTok get like those foldable treadmills under your desk so you right. can keep moving. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the, the motivation walking, the to actually desks. get one is a different story. It's, yeah, it, it's a different story. The walker but, desks uh, are like those little, those little like yeah. uh, those little bike pedals that you can put under your desk just to get a little, yep. a little, okay. a little cycling going. Listen, yep. I had 
I have one. Um, and the you, last time and... I used it was very, uh, it was a long time ago. Oh, come so on, Nazi, you got to step up. Not, it's in the beginning, you know, it's a new, it's a new device. You're excited. You're like, I'm going to, I'm going to hit it. I'm going to do this many steps or whatever. And, and that's it. Like I lost motivation or I put it on the side. It's on, it's at the side of my desk right now. It's under my desk on the side. There's a, doing vi nothing. there's a video game streamer who lost over a hundred pounds by simply putting one of those recumbent bicycles, uh, in front of his television. So whenever he would game, wow. he would just pedal and he would burn like 8,000 calories a day on hardcore gaming That's sessions. Awesome. So, you know, there's something there. Alex Smythe, you said this data made you feel seen as well. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we can all relate because of the fact is, at least for, for three of us, we are either hosting or co-hosting a show daily every single day where we, it's required that we have to sit two hours straight. And then mm -hmm. obviously, uh, uh, Ramya, for you, you're also being uh, a part of this show as well. And for me, like after the, the show is over, then it's okay, you know, you're writing scripts, you're doing this stuff. I've tried some of these other methods of like the standing desk. I, I just don't feel comfortable standing in a same position trying to focus on on the desk like I have to shift I have to move a bit so mm -hmm. yeah I'm, I'm spending a vast majority of my time seated now I do wear a fitness uh, uh, tracker it always promotes me to get up get moving things like that I appreciate it unfortunately though it always seems to remind me right when the show starts at 9 a.m. it always says hey get up and move it's like I literally yeah. cannot the show is starting I have to be seated <laughs> so I, I've kind of gotten to the process of slightly ignoring those uh, kind of prompts and, <laughs> and suggestions to move but who, yeah, judge, who judges you? Your watch judges you? I had the, watch. The, I had the Fitbit Absolutely. and it would keep reminding me, okay, you're not getting up enough. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I would My feel thing judged, would say, so I like, started to take it off. aggressive stuff. Same. <laughs> So my watch would say all kinds of passive aggressive things like, um, hey, uh, did you know you haven't moved in 50 minutes and things like that? <laughs> oh my God. Or give me thumbs down emojis like I, I it was very critical. Yeah, I, you know, I, I set my devices to be degrading to me. It's more fun that way. <laughs> um, so, OK, so Nazreen has the adjustable desk. Ramya has the adjustable desk that she never actually adjusts. Nazreen is thinking about the treadmill, has the bike pedal she never uses. Alex, that leaves you and me. I do not have an adjustable desk. I sit in a regular chair, but I will say, if the opportunity presented itself to use one of those yoga balls, I would consider mm. it. I know that doesn't actually really help the situation, but at least it would be a way of strengthening my core while I'm sitting yeah. on my keister. No way. No way would I ever do I hate those things. Like, I find having sat on them, it's like... I, I maybe last like a couple minutes and I'm like slowly sliding off and then I'm spending the entire day just trying to focus on staying like perfectly still on that ball so I can actually do my work. Like I feel it's not an effective use for me to focus on the work I have to do. It's the same thing with the idea of doing like the treadmill. I'd be too caught up and just keep walking to actually focus on the work that I'm doing. And so, um, yeah, then your scripts would get a lot worse and a lot more typos and errors in there, Dave. So <laughs> I don't know if you necessarily want that from me. During the early days of the Pandos, I was hosting the show from my living room. I was doing it on a fitness ball and several times while trying to type I almost fell over in mid-show so uh yeah <laughs> maybe not so much executable uh during the live broadcast Alex thank you for this Nazreen thank you as well Ramya 2 p.m eastern time today Kelly and Ramya what's the best thing coming up on the show one thing and one thing only or else Karen McKay is gonna get mad at you
All right, all right. Audible um, has put out the Ashley Madison hack. It's called Exposed, and I'm very much looking forward to talking about it on the Chatty Bookshelf with Ryan Huey. <laughs> Getting a little naughty with Ryan Huey today. I like that one. Uh, Ramya, thank you for this. Have a lovely weekend. You too, Dave. Kelly and Ramya, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV. Coming up after the break, the 2024 Audi Awards are taking place next month. Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access tells you about some of the nominees. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv, it's been a good month for Canadian writers. Margaret Atwood and Naomi Klein have both received recognition for their work. Karen McKay can offer a bit more context. Karen is the communications manager at the Centre for Equitable Library Access. Hey, good morning, Karen. Nice to chat with you. Good morning. Nice to see you. So let's start with Margaret Atwood, who won the 2024 Writer in the World Prize. She's the first Canadian to receive the award since it was established in 2021. I don't know if that's a massive accomplishment to have only received, been the first Canadian to receive something that's only existed for three years. But nonetheless, that is a fact. Uh, Karen, I, I, I know there are all kinds of flowers for Margaret Atwood in the literary world. How would you describe her impact? Well, from a personal perspective, um, she, I read her Handmaid's Tale book in university, and it shocked me. And I sort of dug into it a little bit and learned that she had pulled from um, realistic sources for this book. And so it opened an awareness in me in, in a ton of ways. And I think that that's what her work does sort of globally. It really makes us think about things differently. She is um, she's an incredible writer, so the, the literary capacity is just phenomenal, but also just the way that she thinks of, uh, about the world and draws in all of these different perspectives, I think is really important for readers. And that's why she holds such a, um, an esteemed place in our literary world. I, I think that her ongoing commitment to libraries and literature also is something that makes her stand out. She's not just someone who says, buy my books and read my books. She believes deeply in the power of reading. And I think that's something that you and your colleagues and certainly this guy sitting at this desk deeply believe in too. We are very grateful for her advocacy, not only for us, but for literature in general. Yeah, 100%. All right, Karen, let's just switch over to Naomi Klein, who's on the long list for this year's Women's Prize for Nonfiction for her book, Doppelganger. Why do you think this book stands out? Well, the premise of this book is really interesting. So Naomi Klein has been... Um, mistaken for Naomi Wolf, another author who's a feminist, and, and um, she became sort of a conspiracy theorist during the pandemic. And so the, the book is all about um, how these two women are confused, what it means for Naomi Klein, what it means for their, their work, for their persona, for their audience. It's just a really interesting book. And Naomi Klein, is she's another amazing writer who has the ability to weave all these different threads together to come up with something that's really sort of a unique perspective on things. What are some of the other topics that are being uh, brought forward? There's 16 other books that have been uh, nominated here. So what are some of the topics that are being brought forward more broadly? Um, well, it's a women's 
uh, prize. So things like feminism are, are a common thread throughout the role of women, uh, the role of society, the, you know, all of those sorts of things that you would expect, relationships, motherhood, love, loss, all of those sorts of things, but all from a women's perspective, which I, as a woman, really appreciate. The shortlist will be revealed on March 27th and the winner on June the 13th. All right, Karen, you're always trying to beef up my reading list. This time you're going to add some audiobooks to the mix. The 2024 Audi Awards nominees are out. They are a premier awards program in the United States, highlighting, highlighting audiobooks and other spoken word entertainment. The winners will be announced in Los Angeles on March the 4th. So, Karen, let's go through a couple that stood out to you. Murder Your Employer. Don't get any ideas, Dave. The McMaster's Guide to Homicide by Robert Holmes. So I looked at this list and I thought I was kind of in an odd mood when I chose all these books. So this one is about um, a college dedicated to the fine art of murder. So students study how to best, quote unquote, delete their most deserving victim. Uh, in order to gain access to the, to the college, they have to have an ethical reason for erasing someone who deeply deserves the fate. So the book is written uh, sort of as a, in a handbook format uh, by the dean of the school, and it details the experiences of three different students from the graduating class. One's named Cliff Iverson. He's an aer uh, aeronautics engineer. Uh, another's a hospital employee. And the third is a um, uh, Hollywood diva. And so they all come with this, this plan to get rid of somebody who's um, making their life difficult. And they, for the most part, it's their boss. And so the the book is hilariously funny. It's very dark. Um, and as readers, you end up kind of on the wrong side. You're sort of cheering for the murderer in, in these books, um, which, you know, which I think is just, it's kind of a, it's kind of a delightful take on just sort of flipping this story. The book's sort of a slow burn and you end up guessing and assuming only to really have to to reevaluate your assumptions it's really witty there's lots of wordplay there's all kinds of really breathtaking twists uh and it's just it's just an interesting premise for the book so i thought i'd share it i thought that might be something that you might like but it's something <laughs> i really want to read too i haven't had a chance to get all the way through it i just did a quick uh quick review on it and it's it is very funny Aaron, you are very good at reading the dealer over here. You'd be an excellent poker player. Okay, over to a Tom Lake, a novel by Ann Patchett. Yeah, so this one is nominated in a few categories, including Audio of the Year, Fiction, and Best Narrator. And I have to say, I did read this book uh, just after Christmas, and Meryl Streep uh, narrates it, and she is fantastic. I'm really pulling for her for that award because the narration is just fantastic. So the book is about um, a woman named Laura. She has three daughters. Uh, it's written during the pandemic, and so all three daughters are home. They have a, a cherry... Uh, orchard that they run in northern Michigan and Laura in her earlier years was a, a famous actress and so we get to hear the story of her acting uh, career she always played Emily in uh, Our Town so if you're going to read Tom Lake I suggest reviewing what Our Town uh, is about because the the book sort of uh, intertwined with Our Town it's a really beautiful memoir as I said it's it's wonderfully um narrated and it's all about youthful love and regret and um the the impact that early relationships have on us um it's about identity both the one that we put out into the world and the one that we sort of keep hidden uh there's a little bit of a twist at the end which um which i loved it's 
one of my favorite books of the year. I know it's only February, but so far it's one of my favorite books of the year for sure. Even in February, it still counts, Karen. It still counts. I'm, I'm excited to watch Dune in a couple of weeks. It'll be my favorite movie of 2024 until something else comes out. Okay. Right. I'm going to read the title for this one, and then you're going to tell me a little bit about it, and then I'm going to tell you one of my favorite dinosaur facts. This one's called okay. How to Survive History, How to Outrun a Tyrannosaurus Rex, Escape Pompeii, Get off the Titanic and survive the rest of history's deadliest catastrophes. This is by Cody Cassidy, and it's in the humor category. It is, and it's a very funny book. So um, history, the premise is that history is the most dangerous place on Earth, and the odds of human survival are slim, but not zero, at least uh, not if you know what to do where you're, and where you're going to go. <laughs> so so there's a chapter uh, in each in this book for a variety of different things. Like you said in the title, there's the dinosaur age, but there's also the ice age. Uh, there's the darkest year of the dark ages, black death, the fall of um, Constantinople, the uh, voyage with Blackbeard. Like it's just, it's a really kind of eclectic um, uh, book. So if you like your history with a with a twist of humor and a side to serving of science, this is the book for you. It's It sort of reads as an entirely serious attempt, although it's not, um, to guide visitors through all of our sort of greatest catastrophes over the year. And it's done with the benefit of hindsight and modern science. So if you love time travel, if you're into history, um, if you want to just have, a, you know, something really interesting to talk about at your next dinner party, this is the book for you. It's hilarious. Karen, the fact that you and I are alive today is a miracle and a blessing. And that, and that's and that's at the heart of gratitude, like through and through, to know what our ancestors went through from being a little speck of bacteria in the ocean to where we land today still being here is a remarkable, amazing thing. I love time travel. I love dinosaurs. I love the notion of time. I would argue that the Tyrannosaurus Rex is probably the most famous dinosaur, and it walked the Earth about 65 million years ago before the asteroid hit and the dinosaurs were wiped out. I would argue the second most famous brand of dinosaur are the longnecks, the Diplodocus, the Brachiosaurus, the herbivores, the long-necked herbivores that wandered the Earth about 140 million years ago. Where you and I sit today is closer to the existence of the Tyrannosaurus Rex than the Tyrannosaurus Rex was to the existence of the Diplodocus. That's amazing. And it's kind of mind-blowing, right? It's yeah. kind of mind-blowing. Okay, Karen, one more here. I'm, I'm not even sure if I should even be saying the title of this novel. I, I wonder if it might actually mm. be a racial slur. Um, so I'm going to do this with a bit of a caveat and a bit of uncomfortability. And I'm going to warn you that you've only got about two minutes to talk about this. It's Yellowface, a novel by R.F. Kuang. Yeah, so this is uh, nominated for the fiction category, and this is a really interesting book. It's written by a Canadian author, and it's about uh, two authors. So the first is Athena Liu. She's a critical and commercial darling. She's just signed a huge deal with Netflix, and she has a, a frenemy, a, f a friend and an enemy in Juniper Hayward who has uh, written her debut novel, but it's already been forgotten. It was sort of axed due to poor sales. Athena dies in a freak accident, and June steals her unpublished manuscript and publishes, at a, uh, publishes it as her own under the name Juniper Song. 
So all of June's dreams come true. She gets a million dollar, more than a million dollar advance. She gets all of the critical kudos she's been hoping for. She gets a spot on the New York Times bestseller list. But there's this small issue that she didn't actually write the book. And so the story begins down this path of um, June trying to justify what she's done, trying to cover up what she's done. The world shifts beneath her feet quite a lot. There's a, a lot of it's sort of absurd, so it is a bit funny in places. Um, but it really is an interesting book in that it delves into things that we have been talking about more broadly. It's talks about things like uh, the publishing industry, cultural appropriation is a big theme in this book, the alienation that comes from social media. Uh, it's partly, um, it's a very interesting book because the characters are not overly likable. So it really pushes us as a reader to examine our own stereotyped assumptions. And it it's um, sort of a what would you do if kind of premise, mm -hmm. like how far would you go to get the things that you want, how far would you go to preserve those? And at what point do you realize you're off track? Oh. It's a it's a it's a wickedly funny book in places and yet also really a thoughtful one. Yeah, love it when a book puts me into an ethical quandary. Thank you, Karen. That's pleasure. Karen, that's Karen McCabe from the Center for Equitable Library Access. That's all the time there is for the show this week. Until Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Let's say thank you to the people who put this show together. Roll those credits, gang. Host, Dave Brown. Co-host producer, Alex Smythe. Sports reporter, Brock Richardson. Entertainment reporter, Laura Bain. Contributors, Ramia Muthan, Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanero. Visual producer, Bruce Baclarian. Producers, Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion jones Bob Pagrak. Production assistant, Kingsley Juco. DB producer, Mark Phoenix. Director, Anastasia Spalding-Stenhouse. Control room operators, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby, Caitlin Robinson. Operations Coordinator, Jordan Mulgrave. Manager of Operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of Live Productions, Paula Deneen. Director of Content Development, Kara Nye. Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2024, Accessible Media Inc. NAMI Original Production. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.